Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for tuning in today. We have a really exciting episode for you today, a really exciting conversation and interview with my new friend, Katie Faust. Now, you may have seen recently, if you follow me on social media, that I spoke out against surrogacy, and I said that it was intrinsically wrong because it, it intentionally de denies a child one or both of their parents. And some of you guys who follow me on social media were pretty upset about that, and you thought that surrogacy was kind of just like adoption, and as long as it was not creating a commodification of women to buy their wombs and rent them, but if it was done uh, consensually and willfully and it was done for free out of the goodness of one's heart, then surrogacy should be completely fine. So I thought it would be important to really dive into this conversation regarding surrogacy, regarding donor conception, essentially third-party reproductive technologies, anything that is outside of the typical man-woman, married couple creating children through the normal process of sex. So I brought on my friend Katie today. She is the founder and director of Them Before Us, phenomenal name for an organization, which exists to advance social policies and encourage adults to actively respect the rights of children rather than expecting children to sacrifice their fundamental rights for the sake of adult desires. In 2012, Katie began writing about why marriage is a matter of social justice for kids because marriage is the single best familial union that guarantees the best it, um, protection and a future success of children. Her articles and interviews have appeared in USA Today, Public Discourse, LifeSiteNews.com, The Daily Signal, The Eric Metaxas Show, Breakpoint, and so many more. She is a regular contributor at The Federalist and has filed several amicus briefs supporting children's rights and advocated on behalf of children with lawmakers in the US and abroad, as well as at the United Nations. Katie just dropped a new book in February entitled Them Before Us, why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, which I've been reading through. It's phenomenal. I would recommend it to you. She has really flipped the script on the adult-centric attitudes we have towards marriage, parenthood, and reproductive technologies by framing these issues around a child's right to be raised by both their mother and father. Katie is married to a pastor and the mother of four children, the youngest of whom is adopted from China. Listen, buckle up, you're in for a treat. We're gonna challenge you, but we're gonna equip you to stand for life and for the most vulnerable in our society in a culture of death. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Katie, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. I, I've been reading through your book. Just phenomenal. Uh, such an important book. I think it's such an important time. You and Ryan Anderson and John Stone Street and so many of others have done such a good job speaking to these issues, but never quite as um, adept and maybe in such a concise manner uh, as you have in this new book. And as the culture of death uh, goes onward at 100 miles an hour. Um, it's always the children who are, are left um, out to struggle, whether they're unborn children doomed to die or born children um, who are told, uh, be grateful that you were wanted and it doesn't matter how you came into this world, just be grateful that someone loves you and is raising you. Uh, we don't hear their stories. You've committed yourself to telling their stories, but also explaining why we should be involved in ensuring that those stories don't keep happening. And so I wanna dive into all of that, but first tell us how you got involved in becoming such a public voice for children's rights. I got involved by accident. Actually, you know, because I, I don't necessarily want to be in the middle of controversial issues. I don't like to be kicked out of uh, Facebook mom groups for thinking <laughs> things like kids need moms and dads, <clears throat> right? I would rather just be quiet and keep my friends. 
But, um, you know, what, what I heard um, back in the marriage debate back in 2012, um, what I heard the other side saying was uh, kids don't need moms and dads. They don't care if they have two moms or two dads. And functionally, right. that means they don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. And, mm. you know, I've wow. been a kid. I've been working with kids for 20 years. I used to work. I was the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. Like I've got some exposure wow. to children and loss. And mm. what I've learned is that anytime a kid loses a mother or a father, it's painful. It doesn't matter mm. how it happens. Um, and so what I heard the other side saying is they don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. Um, and these days, right, it's not through tragedy. It's usually intentionally. Um, mm. Oftentimes because parents won't work out a difficult marriage um, and they right. decide that they're just going to split, um, you know, the topic that we're going to be talking about today, often it's an intentional choice to separate a child from one or both biological parents at conception. Right. And um, this has some really detrimental effects on children, and it really has paved the way for the complete redefinition of the family. So, right. um, you know, I, I am a Christian, obviously, um, but I saw a lot of people ineffectively arguing for the rights of children um, using scripture. And so we don't do that. We don't do that on our website. We don't do it on our in our book. But for the Christians that are listening, I'd say, you know, we have a mandate to care for and protect the fatherless. But failing to stand firm on the definition of marriage and turning a blind eye to the harms of these reproductive technologies, we are greenlighting the production of fatherless children and the production of motherless children. And so it's really important that we get these questions right. Wow. Um, briefly, you said you, you got dragged in by accident. Can you briefly tell us um, how you were sort of um, maybe unintentionally dragged onto the scene, but how God through his providence um, used that to put you where you are today? Yeah. Um, so I started blogging. I was born in a very angry moment uh, where what I heard the media saying is the only reason you could possibly support traditional marriage is bigotry, right? Not because you've got a well-reasoned case. Um, you certainly could not know or love any gay people in your life. Right. Um, it's just hatred and phobia. That's the only motivation you could possibly have for supporting traditional marriage. But I understood and still do um, traditional marriage as a social justice issue for children because it is the only relationship that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. right. And statistically, mm. it sets them up for a life of flourishing. And right. it's the only family structure that does not require a to be in the family structure. Also, my mom is in a relationship with another woman. They've been together for more than 30 years. I love her. I love her partner. There's no phobia. There's no hatred. There's no animus. There's just a recognition that my mother could never be replaced by two men. That's it, wow. right? Wow. And so I started blogging under the ridiculous blog titled Ask the Bigot because I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess if I'm not on board with your political agenda, that makes me a bigot and it doesn't matter. <laughs> I have all the statistics, all the research right. on my side, common sense, the natural design of the world, the five major religions of the world, and I love gay people, and I've got gay people in my life who support traditional marriage, but I get it. I'm a bigot, right, right. totally understand. So I started blogging anonymously, and then I was uh, outed by a very loving and tolerant gay blogger who doxed members of my church to get me to shut up. And wow. um, I know, it was, I'll tell you, I can handle people calling me mean names, but like when you go after my friends and my That's right. kids, I mean, yeah. it does make you go, okay, you got me, never mind, I'll be quiet, I won't say anything right. again. 
But then on the other hand, there's a little bit of, you know what, F you. How about that? <laughs> so anyway, that's right. Amen. I started blogging and writing yeah, yeah. my own name. And um, it was very much a, a what the enemy means for evil kind of situation because once I was writing in my own name, people would say, would you mind writing, you know, an amicus brief for the Supreme mm. Court? Hey, could you go talk at the wow. United Nations? Can we have you over, you know, to Australia to meet with our, with our members right. of parliament? So it really just increased my platform a hundredfold. Wow. So kind of where we are. Not That's here because amazing. I'm brave. You know, I'm here because um, I got angry. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. somebody, well, you know. You know, he, he, makes, he makes us brave. And, and I love how God used conflict um, to increase commitment to the cause that you were championing. You were already on the battlefield, but he really dragged you to the front lines um, through your commitment to children. Now, you, you talked about how children have a natural right to their mother and father. Now, sometimes this type of language confuses Americans, unfortunately, even in the church, even in evangelical circles, which is it's my opinion that that comes from a lack of moral teaching from the pulpit. Um, because natural rights is grounded in the, in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Natural rights was the type of reasoning that was used to explain the premises that founded this republic by our founders, who many of them were born again believers, because they understood the grounding of natural law, which was a natural law giver. Um, and so we use this type of language all the time in America, but very few people understand what it means. The, the left says that women have a natural right to abortion. It's a human right to abort unborn children. Of course, that begs the question, well, when do, when do unborn women's natural rights begin? And then the right uses this language sometimes when it comes to our rights, uh, our natural right to, 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 to speech, to, to you know, hold and bear arms, to religious liberty. Um, but the preborn child and then minor children who are already born are the most voiceless and always become the first sacrificial lambs on the culture of death. So when you say that children have a natural right, and this you've said to be created, gestated, and raised by their both of their biological parents, what do you mean by that? Well, there are volumes that have been written on natural rights, and I will not, um, I will not present myself as a natural lawyer or a natural law scholar. Um, there's actually like you said, a lot of disagreement and even confusion about natural rights, but not on this natural right, hmm. not on this natural right. Um, and I understand why people are confused because these days, anything adults really, really want are is conveniently framed as a right, right? I have a right to have, <laughs> I have a right to healthcare. Exactly. I have a right to government funded birth control, right? So all of the things that they really want suddenly become a right. So we spent some time in the first chapter of the book kind of talking about what are natural rights. Um, we've got some people that are a lot smarter than me kind of talking about unpacking what makes a natural right. You know, rights correlate to duties. Parents have a duty to raise their child. Therefore, they have a right to that child. Right. Um, the largest treaty in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, clearly lists children's right to their own mother and father um, yeah. right after a child's right to not be killed. Right. So right. it recognizes children's right to life after they're born and then recognizes right after that that the most important right next to that is connection to both of their parents. Um, I just filmed a video for the Colson Center uh, a couple of days ago. It's not going to be out for a while, but on how children's rights don't conflict with parental rights. There's a lot of confusion even on the right about um, children's rights because it's been so misused. So if you have heard the term children's rights, you've probably heard 
children's rights to self-identify, children's rights to sexual pleasure, right? All of these, these horrible kind of um, distortions of children's rights that has been right. championed by people like Planned Parenthood affiliates all across That's the right. world, right? So I understand that there's confusion, but on the topic of children's it is self-evident that children have a natural right to their own mother and father. Let me just drive it home with one point. Like, nobody would argue that parents have a right to take their child home from the hospital, right? They give birth to a little baby girl. They want that baby. There's something That's special, right. intimate, and unique about their connection with that child. They have a duty to that specific child. Therefore, they have a right to that child. Not any child, right? Just that one child. And that's the yeah. one that they want because it matters to them. Right. And that intimate, distinct, biological, unique connection matters to the child as well. The child has a right to go home with the two people that gave birth to her, right? The woman wow. and the man who are responsible for her existence. And so we tend to understand these things pretty easily from a, an adult's perspective. Right. And what we're trying to do on all of these different issues is to say, now let's look at it from the kid's perspective. That's right. Yeah, that, that's brilliant. That makes so much sense when you frame it that way. Of course, parents don't just want any child in the maternity ward. They want to take home their baby because they have a right to their baby. Um, well, those rights go both ways. The, the child has a right to be taken home, loved and raised by the individuals responsible for their existence. So for you guys listening to this who haven't really dove, diving in before into the conversation regarding third-party reproductive technologies, uh, we want to challenge you to begin thinking in it that way, in a rights-based way. If parents have rights to their children, then naturally, self-evidently, that would go both ways. But, you know, Katie, people object, right? Um, and they say, but, you know, the kids are fine. The kids will be fine. And this has been really the objection of the religion of secular progressivism um, for decades, which is that as long as children are in a safe and loving environment, be that one adult or two adults, it doesn't matter the gender of the adults or the biological ties of that adult to the child, as long as they're being loved and protected and taken care of. Um, and so they will apply that to children who are the product of sperm and, and or egg donation as well as to the kids who are the products of surrogacy, the kids are just fine. But as it turns out, the kids are not just fine. Um, and so how, how should we as Christians begin to, to think through that objection given uh, the goal and mission of your organization as well as the best data that we have? Yeah, well, I tell people, I also want kids to be safe and loved and I want them to be just fine. Um, but we know what it takes for kids to be safe and loved and kids are finest when they're raised by their married biological parents. And um, while there are horrible cases of abuse of biological parents, statistically, those two adults are the safest, most connected to, most protective of, and most invested in their children. Um, and those two adults raising those kids together in a married lifelong union is the greatest hedge we've got against abuse, neglect, and abandonment. And so when we look at, we've, and this is not a mystery, we've been studying family structure for decades. Even scholars on the left would agree that kids are going to fare best raised in the home of their married biological parents. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to child well-being, any two will not do. Um, wow. We've got studies that show that children raised by mom and stepfather, for example, fare about as well as kids raised by a lone mother. Um, so just bringing in any guy is not going to be able to replicate the benefits of the child being raised by their own biological father. Now, I say that 
knowing some heroic step parents, right? There are step parents out there who are filling the shoes of a negligent biological parent and they deserve our support. Many of them have really done what they can to seek to mend the wound left right. by a biological parent who honestly wasn't willing to act like an adult. Um, right. And the child very likely suffered from it. So those exceptions exist. But when we are talking about the rule that if you want kids to be safe and loved, then congratulations, you're one of us. You also right. believe that adults should do hard things so kids can have their biological mother and father raising them every day. Because statistically, the very place where a child is most likely to be safe and loved is in the home of their married biological parents. You know, even Obama um, several years ago famously talked about the importance of fathers and, and, and was quite honest in admitting in a public speech some of the struggles he went through uh, not having a relationship with his father. This was, this was broadly accepted on the left and the right. Um, but now the left has completely changed their position on this and, and basically said that fathers are superfluous. It doesn't really matter any two will do or any one will do, right? If you're a, if you're a woman who's single and never found the love of your life but you want to have children, you know, just buy sperm um, and do it yourself. And, and now the left, who used to acknowledge that a mother and a father mattered, are now saying it doesn't really matter. And so in your book, Kitty, you even talked about um, some of the scary, very honest testimonies of parents who, one of whom is raising a child that's not biologically related to them. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk about the biological, not just mandates, but motivations that people feel towards their own biological children that they'll never be able to just muster up towards an adopted child, or oftentimes in third-party reproductive technologies, towards a child that they did help create but have no biological ties to. Um, could you talk to that about maybe some of the, the uh, silent and unsaid um, kind of hard truths about parents' duties that they feel strictly to their own biological children? How, how does that factor into this conversation? Yeah, well, um, it's, a, it's a really big deal. Um, and while I do know people, like I said again, um, adoptive parents and, and step-parents, right, who are making incredible sacrifices for kids who are not related to them. Um, there does, there is an observable, measurable, objective difference in the ways that biological parents connect to their own children, whether it's time investment, whether it's money investment, um, whether it's the level of protectiveness, even if they're not abusive, right? That children in the care of a non-biologically related adult tend to have more accidents, right? Stepmothers don't tend to buckle the seatbelts as much of non-biologically related children. I mean, and... People get really upset about this, and I and I'll tell you, welcome because there's more to come. I have not I have not finished pissing you off yet today, but <laughs> here's the deal: like you're not, I'm not your opponent. The natural world, the natural design, biological reality is your opponent in this fight, and there's no statistical case that you're going to be able to make to the contrary. Now, here's the problem: this reality that biological connection matters in the parent-child relationship is a wrecking ball to the modern family. What it means is you can't have what you want. If what you want means deliberately breaking the bonds between a child's biological parents, the answer is no. The answer is no. Because you're going to be depriving them of one of the two most safest adults in their life. And if you doubt me, just pause this video. And I want you to Google the words mother's boyfriend. And tell me what you see. Wow. I'll wait. It's okay. Okay, you're back. How was that? 
How many pages did you scroll through of massive amounts of child maltreatment, abuse, infanticide? Because statistically, a cohabiting unrelated man is the most dangerous person in a child's life. See, just because you're in love with a child's other parent or just because you're living in the home with them, that doesn't mean you're going to treat them or that person is not going to treat them as they would their own biological child. There really is a security and biological connection. But wow. if we accept that very clearly stated statistical reality, it means that adults have to conform to the rights of children to be known and loved by both mother and father. It means wow. adults can't have what they want. And that is why that reality is so soundly rejected. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. And, and that's obviously to say nothing about parents who are doing a good job raising children that they created. But the point is, is that you were responsible for denying that child um, either one or both of their parents, depending on the familial arrangement. So uh, for people listening to this, maybe Katie, who are a little bit confused about what we're talking about, could you just briefly go through the different ways in which donor conception is practiced? What are, what are, the, what are the different biological and scientific uh, ways that this plays out in the real world as parents seek to find ways to have children other than a married mother and father having sex, creating children um, naturally in her uterus? Yeah, and I'll even back up just a touch more. Um, and that is something that you just mentioned. Um, humanity has a lot of experience with mother and father loss. Um, fathers used to be lost in mass, right? Like after war, there would be generations of fatherless children. Women used to routinely die in childbirth. Um, thank God for modern medicine and modern warfare that has drastically reduced those tragedy-based losses. But these days, children are losing their parents, not through tragedy, but through intentionality. Now, there's a difference between a child losing their parent tragically and a child who's losing their parent intentionally. And the difference is a massive psychological burden on the child. So, hmm. for example, my husband's mother was killed when she was, when he was 16, she was killed suddenly and tragically in a biking accident. And everybody surrounded him. Everybody hmm. validated him. They mourned together. He could talk about it openly. Um, he wasn't alone in his sadness and his mourning. It was reflected by the adults around him. Because if they were to talk about it, they would be condemning the actions of their mother or both mothers. Um, and that's the same for heterosexual couples who create children through sperm and egg donation. These kids, just like all human children, want to know who their mother and father are and right. long for that. Um, we talk in our second chapter of the book about biology matters, about other than those invested and protective of uh, and connected to adults, biological adults, biological parents offer something to children that they crave, and that is biological identity. Um, oftentimes, especially when these kids get to be teenagers or even in their 20s and 30s, they start to wonder, who is this other half of me? In yeah. fact, 80% of sperm donor conceived kids would say, I'm really curious about the right. identity of my biological parent. 50% would say my sperm donor is half of who I am. Yeah. Um, many of them, about 50% are concerned that money changed hands during their conception. Wow. So this is not the kind of thing where being loved and wanted can make up for the absence of a biological parent. And the right. fact that that absence was intentional inflicts an additional psychological burden on the child. So um, right. I wanted to kind of parse that out. Now, let's talk about reproductive technologies. Um, there are 
hundreds of ways that you can make a baby using technology. Um, you you know, Twiblings has been in the news recently where you've got two genetically identical kids gestated in two separate women. So genetically they're twins, but they didn't grow up together. So those are Twiblings. You know, you've wow. got all different ways of creating babies in Petri dishes using the couple's own sperm, donor sperm, donor egg, you know, the own, their own egg. You could outsource the womb of another woman. You could gestate the child yourself. I mean, and then combine all of those and you've got like dozens or hundreds of options. And wow. so I try to boil it down and make it really, really simple. And that is to say, if you can use reproductive technologies in a way that does not violate any child's right to life or any child's right to their mother and father, then God bless you. I wish you well. But that scenario where you only create a child using the sperm and egg of the two people who are going to raise that child, you only use the womb of the wo woman who is going to raise the baby. Um, there's no frozen embryos, which statistically will either spend their life in a freezer, be thawed and discarded, be selectedly um, excluded because they're not viable, deemed the wrong sex, whatever it is, right? If you can only, as we talked about earlier, only 7% of children created in laboratories are going to be born alive because there is wow. so much sex selection, eugenic selection, um, right. thought and discarded, won't make the transfer, will die in utero, won't implant. I mean, when you are messing with the, the way that humans are have reproduced for eons, right? right. And then you think you're gonna replicate that in a Petri dish, mm, yeah. kids are gonna pay right. the price. Right. So if you want to if you want to use reproductive technologies in a way where you, the adults, are the only people taking on the burden and the cost and no kid is losing right. any of their natural rights. Godspeed. Wow. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a, doesn't exist. It's just too expensive. Yeah. That's a powerful point, Kitty, what you said earlier, too, about we you say in the book how we all understand the stories um, of adopted children who go on a journey to find their natural parent or parents. Um, I mean, that's the theme of so many movies. Uh, and, but if you intentionally deny that child their mother or father, then the culture baits and switches and says the kids will be fine and adults have a natural right to children regardless what kind of hoops they have to jump through to create those children. And as you point out in the book as well, you also end up creating these massive family trees um, all over the country of children who who they might be dating and end up marrying some cousin or something crazy because all these people, men and women, are selling their, their eggs or their sperm. They're being bought. And then all of these individuals, human beings, eternal souls are being created, um, being denied access to their biological roots and to their extended family. Um, and this results in what you call in the book genealogical bewilderment, um, which is something that we acknowledge in adopted children, but we don't acknowledge when we plan a priori to deny them their, their mother and father. And, and you tell the stories of many children, some of whom are now adults, Katie, in your book, of donor conception and the struggle they have to share their stories. Um, why is that? And why do we not hear their stories? Yeah, in the book, um, so just an overview for your readers um, so that they know that we're not, that we are equal opportunity offenders, <laughs> that, that there's no adult group that um, is being targeted, but there's also no adult group that escapes responsibility when it comes to conforming to the rights of children. Um, we cover 
first of all, why biology matters in the parent-child relationship, why gender matters, why moms and dads are different, why they offer distinct and complementary benefits to child rearing. Then we talk about marriage and why marriage is a social justice issue for children. And then we talk about divorce. We talk about no-fault divorce and how it's an adverse childhood experience, that it's not like a bad cold that the kids will get over. It impacts a child's heart, mind, body, and future relationships often for life. Then we talk about same-sex parenting and share the stories of, you know, about 30 kids who long for their missing mother or father because they were raised often by a very loving um, set of two moms or two dads. Um, and then we talk about donor conception, where again, we've got close to 30 stories of kids created through sperm and egg donation talking about their genealogical bewilderment. The fact mm. that they've got, who knows, 10, 50, 100 half siblings. And the problems, you know, like you said, dating a potential half sibling is a huge concern for them. Right. Lack of medical information about their medical history is a huge concern for them. And one of the stories that we share in the book is a woman who probably has 100 siblings. They might live in her town, but she wow. doesn't know who they are. And they might not know who they are. And so it's not just, I mean, she's like, thank God I didn't marry one of them. But my children probably now have a couple hundred first cousins. I don't know who wow. they are. They don't know who they are. This is a problem for generations, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, many of these donor-conceived kids are very concerned about um, the commodification, that this is, many of them feel the buying and selling of human beings because it's the buying and selling of human right. beings. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in chapter eight, we talk about surrogacy and why surrogacy is never a child-friendly process. Chapter nine, we talk about adoption and why adoption is an institution centered around the rights of children. Reproductive technologies is a marketplace centered right. around the desires of adults. So we really try to hit all different aspects of the marriage and family debate um, and insist that all adults, single, married, gay, or straight, conform to the rights of children. Amen. Yeah, that's a, that's a powerful point, Kitty. And I think it's it, this. these are the stories that we don't hear. These are the stories that the media refuses to tell. Um, and the, I, I think what we call the, the silent, but also maybe silenced children and adults of third-party reproductive technologies can you explain to us why that is? Why do we not hear these kids' stories as, as a, a movement that's redefining parenthood because they say the kids will be fine, all kids need is love and support. They seem not so willing to hear the stories of the children who were raised in the environments that, the, the, that they are saying is the, the next best thing since sliced bread. Why don't they want to hear their stories? We have um, a section in the introduction called um, Stories of the Silent, and we talk about why um, how expensive it is for kids to tell the truth. When, it, like we said, you know, when a child's parent dies through tragedy, you can talk about it. Um, but when a child loses a parent because adult desire was prioritized above their rights, what are they, what happens if they tell the truth? What if they say, "My, I was really well loved by my two gay dads, but I desperately wanted a mother." Do you think that is going to increase uh, familial cohesiveness or do you think that it is going to create wow. a lot of tension at Thanksgiving? Right. Um, you know, do, if even, you know, even the kids who we profile who have gone through a divorce, they'll mm -hmm. say, I will share my story with you under a fake name and a fake 
picture because you don't understand. I am still trying to deal with my stepmother. And I, I swear, like she, you know, I'm still trying to keep her happy. I'm, I'm, I'm the mediator between my warring parents. I mean, I, nobody can ever know that I told you this. Um, and it's the same thing with kids created through sperm and egg donation. Um, the very, very first site that ever gave us information about the stories of these kids was called anonymous us. And anonymity was built into the system because it was it was the only way wow. that kids felt like I can tell the truth and wow. nobody will ever find me because do you understand like how they would cut me off or they would accuse me of being anti-gay or or they would think that I didn't love them or they would be really really angry and so it's very expensive these kids who's lost a mother or father because adult desire was prioritized above their rights it is very expensive relationally for them to tell the truth. Uh, many are also worried about their jobs, you know, that if they appear to be against something like gay marriage, um, they're terrified. So it's it's a huge deal to finally have some of the stories of these kids who have been impacted wow. by these modern families. Um, and once you look, you'll never unsee it. You know, the next wow. time you see something in the Washington, in the, in the New York Times about the glories of a, a, an open marriage and how happy the kids are, you know, you're going to go, wait a second. I don't mm. think so. I don't think so. Well, many of the people who spoke out against Obergefell and the redefinition of marriage um, were actually children who were raised in same-sex unions who said, I love my two fathers or my two mothers, um, and I'm not a bigot, um, but I, I always felt a gaping hole in my soul that was the deprivation of a mother or a father, and I yearned for that. Um, and the same thing is true of many children who are the result of donor conception, is they're saying the same thing. I love my mother and father, or you know, my two mothers or two fathers, um, but I was deprived of something, and I was always keenly aware of that, and it was difficult for me to be around the fathers of my friends or the mothers of my friends because I didn't have that parent. Um, and yet they love the people who raised them, but we don't hear their stories because it contradicts the narrative of the religion of secular progressivism, which creates an idol and a god out of the self. Uh, and a god gets to decide not just who lives and who dies in abortion, uh, but in, in who has to do what to satisfy my needs and desires. Um, and so, again, guys, go, go buy the book, Them Before Us, by Katie Faust, and read these children's stories. But it goes even deeper than that, Katie. It, it also is a tool of the abortion industry. It also plays into so much of the culture of death that I spend time on this show diving into and equipping people to stand again. So can you help our listeners understand how donor conception inevitably leads not just to commodification, but even to eugenics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Um, I know that this is a hard topic for people who are pro-life because we love babies. We love babies. And so we think anything that results in more babies is great. Um, and I love babies and I've got a lot of friends created through sperm donation. Um, right. and they're wonderful, but somebody had to lose something for that arrangement and it was the kid and that's an injustice. Mm. Um, Many of them are, like you said, concerned about commodification, right? They really do see that the existence of money here is the driving force, um, you know, especially when you get to the topic of surrogacy and 
how anybody can walk away from the hospital with a baby. Um, they're really concerned that it's really just, you know, look at adoptive parents like me. We had to go through screenings, background checks, home studies, references, post-placement right. reports, trainings, right? Before the agency said, okay, yeah, we can place a child with this family, right? I had to, we had to clear three different kinds of background checks. When it comes right. to surrogacy, there's no background checks. The only check that has to clear is the one at the bank. If you've got wow. the money, you get the baby. It doesn't matter right. if you're related to them or not, right? And so the commodification aspect is very concerning to children created through these technologies. But also the eugenics aspect of this, right? That really um, you've got a lot of, you, so uh, Google egg donor catalog and see what you find, right? You're going to be taken to like California cryobank or something like that, where you get to Tinder style, kind of look at the different profiles of women who are donating their donating their eggs, wow. which everybody's buying and selling. There's nobody donating anything. It is a market right. exchange, right? Yeah. One donor conceived woman said, um, my father pretty much paid 75 bucks to stay out of my life forever, right? That's how much he got paid to donate his sperm. And what wow. he meant was I, in essence, he cut himself off from her forever. It was That's the right. price of never having contact with her. And he chose that, mm. you know, I, there's one woman in the book that said, you know, the whole, I'm so loved and wanted. She said, whenever my mom would say that, what I just heard is, okay, that just means I was so unloved and unwanted by my father. That's really the wow. flip side of that coin, right? right? And so the loved and wanted, and I've paid so much money for you. The flip side of that is, yeah, and you were also sold by somebody. Right. So the commodification aspect of this is very heavily on children from an egg donation. The eugenics aspect of, um, you know, somebody prized these aspects of, you know, my blonde hair, my blue eyes, you know, my white skin, and uh, especially when it comes to egg donation, donation, um, you're going to pay a lot more for a college-educated white girl than you are for somebody with brown skin. So how about Whoa. that for you? I mean, it's just, it's a marketplace. It's right. a marketplace. Yeah. that is driven um, by the desires of adults, and there's zero consideration for the children created. Wow. And you mentioned in your book too, Kitty, that, um, that men who donate their sperm um, make a lot more if they are white, 5'10 or taller, college-educated, um, more athletic, um, all of these types of traits that I guess people are willing to pay more for. And so what you're doing is you're playing right into the very worldview that the left says that they hate, which is the commodification of human beings. Now, of course, the left doesn't hate the commodification of unborn human beings who were killed and then whose body parts are sold, but any other type of commodification they say that they hate. Um, but they're on the leading edge of promoting and pushing the very commodification that they say they dislike and they say they fear. And so by, by dictating what traits are more desirable and allowing a market to be built around that, you're, you're really saying that these traits are more desirable, meaning others are less desirable, meaning the people who have those traits that are deemed less desirable are less than. They are not as wanted, they are not as valuable, um, and therefore they don't have as many rights as the quote-unquote elite class. 
And so I think these are, these are things that a lot of pro-life Christians don't think about. When we talk about third-party reproductive technologies, when we talk about sperm egg donation, these are the type of monsters that you're creating. Um, not only can Christians not have anything to do with this, but we also need to be actively resisting it and fighting against it. Um, but nowhere has, this, has the culture of death, besides abortion, become so distorted, um, repugnant, and repulsive as perhaps surrogacy. Um, and this is something I wanted to dive into you on the second half of, of our conversation today, because so many pro-life Christians will say things like, well, Katie, you know, as long as you're not actually like purchasing a woman's womb um, and there's not a sale, then because, you know, Katie, sometimes it's just Aunt Sally who out of the goodness of her heart, you know, she volunteers her womb to her, you know, to her family members uh, to be able to gestate their child. Maybe that child's biologically re related to her. Maybe it's not. Um, but it doesn't matter. The child will probably be raised by its biological parents, and that's all that matters. Um, you wrote in your book, powerful, you said, before the advent of modern medicine, giving birth was a dangerous business, and many mothers tragically died in the process. The death of a mother on the day of her child's birth is a heartbreak, once universally recognized as catastrophic. But now, thanks to surrogacy, facilitating the tragedy of mother loss has become a billion-dollar industry. Um, so for our listeners who haven't thought about this before, Katie, can you explain the different ways in which surrogacy is practiced? Because the, the Aunt Sally doing it for free, that's not the norm. That seems to be the one that Christians are okay with because it doesn't have a commodification wing to it. But that's not the norm. The norm is an industry. So talk to us about the industry of surrogacy, but also what are the, I guess, the two different ways that surrogacy is practiced today? So you've got traditional surrogacy, which is the mother is pregnant with her own child um, and then gives the baby away. <clears throat> and then you've got um, gestational surrogacy where she is pregnant with donor eggs and sperm. Um, and then she is, doesn't have a genetic connection. She's just the birth mother surrogacy, which is there is no money involved. But even though sometimes the altruistic surrogacy involves compensation for medical expenses and then like living expenses, you can pad that quite a bit. There's several countries where commercial surrogacy is illegal, but altruistic surrogacy is not. And the surrogates still are, still benefit financially, right? Mm -hmm. But that altruistic, I'm simply doing it, you know, with no financial compensation, you're exactly right, is being rare. Um, surrogacy, of course, um, is being used by um, not just heterosexual couples who are infertile, um, right. but also by gay men, single men, single women, some lesbians. I mean, so everybody is using the opportunity to rent out somebody else's body to create a child. Um, wow. There are no rules. There's no tracking. There's no insuring. There's no regulations to right. ensure that the child is actually taken home with their genetic parents. So we'd like, you know, Nobody knows. Nobody's watching. Nobody's tracking. A lot of times these kids move across international borders never to be tracked or talked about or seen again. It's not like adoption where they've got your name and number and they follow up. It's not like that at all. In fact, surrogacy and um, donor conception in general, but surrogacy specifically, um, completely flies in the face of all the adoption best practice that we have developed. So we try to break it down um, in the book by saying what surrogacy does is it splices what should be one woman, the mother, into three separate optional um, women, right? Mm. So there's the genetic mother who offers the egg. 
there's the birth mother who gestates the child, and then there's the social mother who raises the baby. Right. And if all three of those women are found in the same person, then the child won't experience any loss. But right. if any one of these three are outsourced, you're making the child sacrifice something that they have a natural right to so that you can live as you please. And that's wow. an injustice. So we can spend some time talking about some of the egregious dystopic scenarios that surrogacy has enabled. But let's first address what um, what is the most common rebuttal from Christians, which I even saw right. on your Facebook page, right? Like, well, what if it's altruistic and the baby goes home with both their biological mother and father? So right. let's presume that that baby was not the product of a huge batch of embryos that were created, left in a freezer to be either thawed and discarded, donated to research, um, or ultimately given away in an embryo adoption, which are the only other options other than implanting it yourself, right? right? That's, let's say that that didn't happen, that a nice loving couple created one embryo that they immediately implanted in a surrogate who's not being paid any money. And that baby was able to escape the preterm birth and all of the other high risks that go along whenever a woman is carrying an embryo created by a, an egg that she's not genetically related to. There's right. something called genetic dissimilarity that increases right. the risk. That's why all surrogate pregnancies are high-risk pregnancies because wow. there are complications for the baby. So let's say that the baby makes wow. it through, doesn't die during childbirth, isn't selectively reduced, which is aborted, which is a very common part of the surrogacy contract. Right. And the baby is born and immediately handed over to the genetic mother and father. From a children's rights perspective, that's a no. Hmm. No. And wow. it amazes me that pro-lifers are confused about this because yeah. anybody that has volunteered at a pregnancy resource center, they spend a lot of time talking about the importance of the mother-child bond in utero, encouraging right. those moms to connect with their baby, to recognize exactly. that that baby already knows the mom. She yeah. knows the mom's voice, the smell, that, that baby, that mom is the only person that the baby knows. Right. And, you know, we don't put babies on the chest of random people after they're born to bond that's right the baby on the mother's chest because they have an existing mm. bond that's right and so if you are going to hand that baby over to the genetic parents that's nice they probably won't struggle with the genealogical bewilderment that don't right. conceive kids do or that adoptees do but on the moment of birth that birth mother that surrogate is the only parent the baby knows that's right and Many adoptees who lost their mother at birth will say that resulted in a primal wound. Wow. It, it just, it cut, you know, the baby's developing nine and a half months. The day the baby's born is supposed to be a continuation of that relationship. The, the, the first time she sees the mother that she already knows, not the last time she sees the right. only mother that she knows and has That's to start right. at wow. square one on That's development right. and attachment again. So there's yeah. an entire book that has been written on this that is considered mm. the adoptee Bible. It's called wow. Primal Wound. And it has to do wow. with adoptees struggling with bonding, attachment, um, mm. trusting, because they feel that that disruption in the maternal bond that took place on the day of their birth has wow. made it really difficult for them to form relationships in the future. And you know what? Wow. The statistics back them up. So mm. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I genuinely, 
I know friends that have struggled with infertility. I know that it's like a heartbreak every month. I know that it's a crushing load. But in the abortion debate, when an adult says, I'm really worried, I'm really scared, I don't like this diagnosis, we don't say, your feelings should trump a child's right to life. Makes sense. Amen. No, no, we don't. We say, I'm sorry you're scared. I will walk this through with you. Um, I'm going to be at your side. But no matter how you feel, you cannot violate this child's right to life. Well, the same thing goes for couples struggling with infertility. We can say, I know that you're agonized over this. I know you think about this every moment of the day. But no amount of your longing or sadness justifies severing a child's right to the mother or father. Right In both those situations, we insist that adults do the hard thing so that children's rights are protected. Um, And that's the case when someone has an unwanted pregnancy, and that's the case when somebody desperately wants pregnancy. That's a powerful point, Katie. Thank you so much for saying that. And this is why Katie's organization, you guys, Them Before Us, says that adults need to be sacrificing their desires in order to cater and protect not children's needs or desires, sure, but children's rights. Children have a natural right to be raised by, created, gestated by their natural biological parents. In fact, Katie, you reference feminist Renate Klein in your book. She wrote a book called Surrogacy, A Human Rights Violation. And you say in, her, in your book that in her book, feminist Renate Klein actually argues that the blood tie connecting mother and child in utero makes the surrogate mother more of a mother than the genetic mother. And so, so pause here, guys, for you listening to this, for you pro-life people who say, love you, Seth, love the work you're doing, but can't hang with you on opposition to surrogacy. You know, I know I know my friends over here and they couldn't get pregnant and surrogacy provided a beautiful way for them to be able to have a child. And you think that as long as it's done consensually, it's done without any type of cash reimbursement, that we should support that. You were still saying that it is okay or maybe even a social good to deprive a child of their birth mother who at that point is the only human being that they know. Um, and that that's going to have consequences for the child that does inflict a primal wound. And you even talk about in your book how, the, yeah, the, you, literally the blood flow between the umbilical cord leaves some of the child's cells in the mother sometimes for years and decades after the birth of that child. That is such an intimate, deep union that we all enjoyed at our earliest stages of development. Those of you listening to this, probably most of you had a normal conception and a normal gestation in your biological mother's womb. Um, Katie, can you talk a little bit about how even maternal separation is actually a major uh, physiological stressor for the infant? You talk about some of the consequences even to the baby who is removed from their birth mother to be given to their bio mom. Yeah. Maternal separation is a very serious subject. Um, Even brief maternal separation is going to um, create cortisol in the baby's brain. Um, Mothers actually, mothers, mothers, there's nothing like them. You don't mess with the mother-child bond. You don't, Mm. right? Because there is something about that maternal connection, that maternal bond that actually is you know, babies are born without a central nervous system. Erica Komisar talks about this in her book, Being There. Um, literally, mothers function as the neurological center for a child. Babies are incapable wow. of soothing themselves. Um, they cannot lower their cortisol rate. 
hormones, right? Stress goes up. They're, they're hungry. They're afraid. They're tired. The cortisol goes up, incapable of lowering the cortisol. The only thing that does is oxytocin. They can't release oxytocin on their own. The only thing that does is skin-to-skin contact, and that's what brings down the cortisol, right? The stress hormone. And after six to nine months of a mother regulating the baby's stress level through constant touch and skin-to-skin contact and breastfeeding, only then will a baby start to be able to soothe themselves, right? And so when you are separated from your mother, right, it's nice to have another adult kind of step in, but that's not the person that the baby knows. That's not the one they have the bond to. That's not the smell that they recognize. That's not the breast milk that is perfectly tailored for them, right? right. And I think that we can just mess with the foundation of the wow. of human connection and relationships. No, not even briefly, right? So they have studied um, they, they have not done it as much on human infants, kind of immoral, but they've done it in animals, right? And they see that chimpanzees or mice, right, who are not adequately cared for and connect with them, even briefly, will have serious psychological challenges or at least in the moment, psychological troubles. So this mother-child bond, it stuns me that we are at the place where we're going optional, hmm. cut wow. and paste, no big deal, right. wrong wrong if that's if that's true then the entire natural world is wrong that's right that's right you know katie some people say well katie um you know i know some surrogate born children who don't say that they suffered a primal wound and you know i have this study over here katie that shows that this x percentage of people who were you know the products of surrogacy um don't claim to have any wound or sociological physiological physical mental emotional struggles from the way that they were created and raised. Uh, and so, you know, their stories matter too, Katie. Therefore, look, it looks like it's just kind of subjective. I guess you didn't deprive that child of a natural right because they're now 30 years old and saying, yeah, you didn't deprive me of a natural right. I was totally fine with how I was created. I think the pro-life response to this, and then I want to hear your thoughts, is that regardless of whether they feel like their rights were violated or not, their, their rights were still violated. If you're grounded in natural law, you understand that, that, that those are objective realities. What would be an example of this? A slave could be conditioned to not desire their freedom. So would woke leftists therefore say that their rights were not violated? Uh, no, they would still say that that slave's rights were violated and he, need to, he needed to be made aware of the fact that his rights were violated even if he didn't feel like his rights were violated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just because uh, some surrogate-born children might not say that their natural rights were violated, our case is that no, it still was because our case is not built on how you feel about it. It's based on the natural world, the way that, that we come into this world, and the fact that we have a natural right to be raised by our mother and father as from a Christian worldview because that's the intention, right? Mm-hmm. But also because it, it results in the safest and most um, flourishing environment for the child. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are no studies, right? <laughs> So when somebody says, well, I have a study that says that they're doing just as well. No, you don't, because they're not doing them. Hmm. And second of all, a lot of kids created through surrogacy, right? They're not being tracked. And so I don't know what they're being told. Do they know that they were created through a surrogate and born through? I don't know, right? Most donor-conceived kids, many of them, especially created through heterosexual or raised by heterosexuals, they aren't told, right? Many of them don't find out until they take a 23andMe test. And so... Right. How do you track and study a population that doesn't know that they belong in that study? Also, surrogacy is relatively new, 
right? So we've had traditional surrogates, which is women pregnant with their own child who hand the child over to somebody else. Um, but the gestational surrogacy, where you're creating babies in labs and then renting a womb, very, very often the womb of a poor brown woman overseas because brown wombs are cheaper than white wombs. Uh, like we're not tracking them. Right. right. We're not keeping tabs on where these kids are going and how they're doing. The only way that they would be a part of a study like this is if their parents volunteered them for a study. And so right. I don't really know how likely that yeah. is. So this That's is a right. wild west, right? For the first time in human existence, we are making babies without sex. And you would think that somebody would have an interest in doing research and tracking this because right. we are messing with the very foundations of what it means to be human. The That's studies right. aren't being done. That's and right. so we're not going to have data. For a while, all we are going to have is stories. And the That's reality right. is we're not going to have stories, most stories, on right. surrogacy for 20 or 30 years because right. it takes a little while. You know, we look at the kids created through sperm and egg donation. We've got tons of stories from sperm yeah. donors because sperm donation has been happening for 40 or 50 years. We have a handful of stories from egg donors because egg right. donation really only rose to popularity in the last 20 years. It, right. And what I've found in terms of gathering the stories of kids who have lost a mom and dad is they have to be about 10 years out of the house before they're able to have the time and the distance to truly mm. reflect. Even kids right. of divorce, right? Even when they're 22, they're like, eh, no big deal, I don't care, right? And it's not until they're 28 or 32 or 35 right. and having their own kids going, you know what? That totally jacked me up. That was such yeah. garbage. So yeah. it's going to be a long time before we have studies and before we have the stories. So until then, we should probably just go with the fact that natural design is exactly right and don't mess with it. That's right. Exactly. Great point. So listen, for you guys listening to this, if you're a Christian or if you're a pro-life individual who's non-religious but you're grounded in the moral law and in natural law, here's what I want you to think about. If there is a natural law and there's a natural order, then it's because it was intended to be that way. If it was intended to be that way, whether it was Yahweh or just some God that you as a non-religious pro-lifer acknowledge exists, regardless, if it was intended to be that way, then there's a reason it was intended to be that way. If there's a reason it was intended to be that way, then anything outside of that natural order is going to yield consequences. This should be self-evident from a Christian worldview, but also for an atheist who's grounded in the natural law and yet has forgotten that he has to find the source of that natural law. But regardless, it means that there's going to be consequences. So everything that Katie does and that we're talking about is merely using data, rationality, our, our faculties of reason, to point out, here are the consequences. This is why this is bad, wrong, disordered, and intrinsically wrong, because it violates the natural rights of children. And yet, <clears throat> you're right, these are not stories that we hear because, um, for the reasons you said, but also because they're simply not enough. I want to read one surrogate-born man's story that you quote in the book as he describes his primal wound, and then I want to get to one last topic before we close out the show. Here's what he said. He said, something horrible happened to us at birth. We lost our mothers. They did not die, but they might as well have been dead because we lost them in the capacity of mother. And to a tiny baby, that feels like death. They, all, they, all, they are all we ever knew, and suddenly they were gone. That makes us feel very rejected. That leaves a hole in our hearts, whether we're admitting it to it or it manifests some other way, like in depression or fear of getting close to someone else. Sometimes, he says, it doesn't show up until we are in our teens or young adults. And like me, sometimes it shows up as a baby when I scream my head off for six weeks and they call it colic. 
They call it stomach gas or an immature neurological system. Nothing can console us. I wanted my mother and she wasn't there. You can't just substitute mothers and expect us to be okay with it. Um, and yet these are the stories that Chris, Chris freaking Cuomo um, is not going to say on his show. These are stories you're not going to hear from the high priests of secular progressivism because they don't give a damn about the consequences of their worldview as long as the desires of adults are, are fulfilled. And so you guys, if you have been okay with surrogacy in any way, shape, or form, you need to buy Katie's book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, and you need to read the stories. And then you need to ask yourself, um, are they lying to me, or is there something here that I've missed? Lastly, Katie, I want to deal with this last objection um, for the listeners of the show to either be challenged with or to be given tools uh, to, to engage on this topic. So people will say, Christian pro-lifers will say, as they were on my Facebook page and on yours, they'll say, it's just like adoption, Katie. Surrogacy is just like adoption. It's not a big deal. I just, I just want to avoid the commodification financial aspect of it. So as long as it's a woman doing it for free out of the goodness of her heart, and it's not a gestational, or I guess it could be gestational or, um, or natural, but as long as that child is then given to the, to the mother and father, uh, especially if it's a biological mother and father, um, then that's just awesome. That's just so great. And you know what? That's just like adoption. And, and how could we be opposed to adoption as, as pro-lifers? So can you explain why surrogacy, even in its quote-unquote best form, is actually not like adoption? Yeah, and we'll just throw in sperm and egg donation too, right? So reproductive technologies that deny children their mother, their genetic mother, their birth mother, or their genetic father, um, they are completely unlike adoption. And I'm going to give you four reasons why. Um, the first one is adoption. Oh, who's the client? That's the first question. So when I worked at the adoption agency, um, I remember one time I went to my founder and director and I said, I am working so hard to get this parent, these parents approved. I mean, we're just running into snag after snag. I mean, honestly, there's a few red flags in here, but I trust me, I am really going to get this done. And she goes, you misunderstand. Those adults are not our client. The child is the client. And we're not here to give them a baby. We're here to find the kid, the parents that need them. Right. And it was my first time, right? I was kind of new. And it was my first time going, wait a second, you're right. The point isn't to get the parents approved. The point is to get the baby to parents who can love them, right? So in adoption, ideally, if, I, if adoption is done right, every child that needs a parent is going to be placed in a loving home. But right. not every adult who wants a kid is going to get one. Right. If mm, adoption right. is done well, some adults are going to get rejected. Okay. Right. Reproductive technologies in the world of big fertility, the adult is the client. The goal is right. to get them a baby at any cost. It does not matter how many babies' lives are going to be lost in the process, whether or not a baby is going to lose their mother or father, whether they're going to be separated from their birth mother. If the adult has the money, they will get a kid. It's just right. a matter of time. Okay. Yeah. And we tell in the surrogacy chapter about these sickening situations where men have created children through surrogacy just for the purpose of exploitation. And there's no background checks for them. There's no follow-up. There's no social worker, right? They were able to put together sperm, egg, and womb, and they walked out of the hospital with a baby that they went home and abused. So wow. yeah, that's, so it's not adoption, right? They're because the client. Clients, right. Yeah. They're not, the adult's the client. So the, the adult gets what they want. Um, next, we talk about why ado adoption seeks to mend a wound. So okay. in both cases, right, adoption and big fertility, 
The child has a wound. The child has a wound because they have lost something they have a natural right to. In adoption, the adults seek to mend the wound, right? They didn't create the wound. They're just saying, we recognize that you have this need. need. We're going to come along and try to mend that wound. Right. In donor conception, the adults who are raising the kid created the wound. They inflicted it. They intended for it, okay? And that means that in adoption, the adults are filling a void for the child, right? The child has this need. The adults come along and say, I'm going to fill that need. In reproductive technologies, the child fills the void for the adults, right? The adults want something, and so they create it and so that they get it. And that has a really serious psychological effect, like we talked about on the kid, right? Where now the kid almost has to be, so in typically the way the parent-child relationship should go is the adults should be understanding, accommodating, um, kind of bend to the needs of the kid, right? That's kind of what makes you the adult. But in all of these desire-based losses, the child is expected to be a sacrificial understanding and accommodating to meet the needs of their parents, right? And so what that means is the the kid has to do hard things and the adults aren't doing the hard things. And so interestingly, the one study that we have that measures outcomes for adoptees versus children created through sperm donation found that adoptees fare better, Mm. even though the sperm donor kids are being raised by at least one biological parent. But something about the adults who are breaking the the biological connection from the parents and then intentionally and then raising the child to the point where the child feels like I'm here for them versus the child in adoption where the adults sought to mend the wound, these kids do. So that reversal of the adult child dynamic really seems to have a psychological impact. And then finally, we talk about how adoption is sometimes necessary. Like this is a broken world. I mean, we all know of situations where a child is, has to be removed from the home or was abandoned or genuinely orphaned. And the, and a a just society will care for those orphans. Reproductive technologies, sperm and egg donation and surrogacy may be very wanted, but it's never necessary. And functionally, you know, big fertility is in the business of creating orphans. And so adoption cares for orphans, big fertility creates orphans. So there are two totally different situations, right? That's right. Um, And again, I, you know, I say this as an adoptive mom, a mom who understands Mm. that my son does have a wound that honestly... I will never be able to fully compensate for what he's lost. And I can say that and still say that adoption is good and redemptive um, and should be supported by a just and fair society. Um, Reproductive technologies are not that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Guys, let me repeat just very quickly what Katie just said. You guys really need to understand this, especially if, if, if like some of the people on my Facebook page, you said, it's just like adoption as long as it's done right. Listen, in third-party reproductive technologies, the people who are raising the child created the wound, as Katie said. So the child has to deal with their primal wound. With whom? With the very no people who created yeah. it. Right, or no and one normally they, they just stay quiet because they know right. that if they say, hey, I really wish I had a dad, what they're going to hear is, but you're so loved and wanted. Well, yeah. aren't... You know, the alternative is to be dead. Would you rather be That's dead? Right. I mean, That's it's right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so these That's kids right. just have to live underground, and they have to 
honestly, a lot of them think that they're crazy mm. for wanting what every human child has ever wanted throughout history. Right. Yeah. So uh, adoptive parents seek to mitigate and heal tragedy insofar as they can, um, and they're better situated to do it because they didn't create the tragedy. In surrogacy and third-party reproduction, the people raising the child created the tragedy and engaged in a market system that was designed to create that tragedy, namely denying children their natural rights to their mother and father. So you guys, I hope you got that. I wanted to repeat that again. Um, and then I want to finish with this line from Katie from the book. And again, you guys go by them before us, why we need a global children's rights movement. Katie, you write, birth is intended to be a continuation of the mother-child bond, not the moment at which the child suffers an intentional primal wound. It's the day when a baby should see the mother she already loves for the first time, not the last. And that's exactly what surrogacy does. So, for, so listen, pro-lifers, Christians, if you're in support of this, what you're saying is that children can justifiably be denied or should be denied a right to a relationship with the mother responsible for their existence, as long as the child will be given to the biological parents who, who sacrificed the rights of that child because they really wanted a child. Uh, we don't have to do this. Adoption we do have to do only insofar as a tragedy is being created that the adoption agencies didn't create. So in that way, we kind of need adoption. We don't need third-party reproduction. We don't have to do these things, but we're doing them anyways because we're saying that the, the desires and needs of adults should be put before the rights and needs of children. And that's what Katie's organization is built around, you guys, is them before us. We're the adults. We need to grow up and sacrifice our desires um, on the altar, or rather on the rights of the child to a mother and father. Katie, where, uh, any closing comments, and also where can people connect with you and support your wonderful work? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, of course, you can go to thembeforeus.com. That's where we live online. Um, the book is available on Amazon. Um, it really is our manual, right? The manual for this global children's rights movement. Um, and let me just say, you're welcome. You're welcome to join us. We have supporters from... I don't know if we've got any Buddhists yet, but we've got the other four religions, like we got them. Um, we have a lot of supporters who are same-sex attracted or who identify as gay. Um, we've got a lot of people who live through a divorce, a lot of kids who are created through sperm and egg donation, a lot of kids with same-sex parents who are with us. I mean, we are kind of the ragtag group of, if you just think that it's time to for children to be the priority and the center and that adults should stop sacrificing them when they alter adult desire, you're one of us and awesome. you're going to find quite a coalition um, because just like the pro-life movement, when you stand unflinchingly on the rights of a child, there's a lot of people that can get behind that. Um, right. The downside is that it has implications for all of our lives, that yeah. no adult gets a pass. Everybody at some point is going to have to do a hard thing to protect the rights of children in their world. Um, right. And that's one reason why I think we're succeeding is because there have been other pro-family organizations that were not willing to apply this equally. Um, mm -hmm. They were very willing to raise the alarm over same-sex marriage or gay men producing children through surrogacy. Um, and rightfully, they were kind of called out and saying, but but if mothers and fathers matter, if biology matters, then why aren't, why aren't you getting so upset about the nice Christian couple who's using a sperm right. donor? And that's a pretty good objection. Right. But in this children's rights movement, we are equipping all adults to defend the rights of all children, but that makes demands on 
all of us. That's right. So um, I hope that you'll consider joining us yeah. because I, I love the pro-life movement and I feel like we have a lot to learn from it. Um, but children have rights on this side of the womb as well and we have to defend yeah. them. That's right. That's awesome. So you guys, listen, this is just the trickle down um, natural progression of natural rights. This mm -hmm. is a pro-life podcast. You guys listen to this because you love what I do and you want to get equipped to defend life because the child has a natural right to life. Well, that's not the only natural right they have. As our founders recognized, the right to life precedes all other rights, and then you have other natural rights. Well, one of those natural rights is the natural right to be, to be created, gestated, and raised by, by your biological parents, and all the best sociological longitudinal studies show that children fare best in every category when raised by their biological married parents. Um, this is why we should care about this. This is why you should care about, care about it. And also because it, a lot of unborn children end up being aborted and murdered in the pursuit of these third-party reproductive technologies. So, uh, so much of what Katie does is not just for the, the familial rights of unborn children and born children, but also about the, the right to life of unborn children who are, who are commodified and, and sacrificed on the altar of adults' desire. So you guys, go get Katie's book, Then Before Us, Why We Need a Global Ch uh, Children's Rights Movement. Uh, support her work. And then um, we need your voice everywhere, Katie. I mean, I wish every church would book you and bring you out for uh, Christians and culture conversations on how to think through these issues because so much of the issues in the country today stem from a lack of moral teaching from the pulpit. So if you're a pastor, you guys, or a lay pastor, consider booking Katie to come uh, preach at your church. I'm sure you and I, Katie, will be doing more in the future together. Go follow her on Facebook. Go to thembeforeus.com. Thank you, Katie, so much for joining the show today. We'll be sure to have you back. We're praying for everything that you're doing, and, and thanks for committing your life to this as you receive a lot of hate in return. Thanks so much for having me. Um, we love I, you know, I love the pro-life cause and I just feel like we all need to be on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. Well, we'll see you soon guys. Thank you for tuning in today. Engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule. If you want to hear me speak live and local or to book me for an event, my summer's pretty much already full and the fall's filling up fast. So reach out to me soon. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. View our nine different perks and tiers. Just as a small thank you for supporting the show, which helps us increase our production value, do more episodes, expand our reach, and also uh, begin creating conversational content with a video team on the streets where we put these ideas into a conversational format in the public square on university campuses so you can get equipped to defend life and help us bring an end to human abortion so that every child is protected and all of their natural rights are protected. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.